I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, I'm talking with Lawrence Lessig and Zephyr Teachout on the state of democracy. Our democracy is flatlined because when you can show clearly there's no relationship between what the average voter cares about, only if it happens to coincide with what the economic elite care about, you've shown that we don't have a democracy anymore. When you talk about the corruption in Congress, people are talking about the same thing that Madison was talking about, this this sense that our, our public servants are just serving themselves. They're running away with the resources of our country. We are doing the the hardest work that Americans have always done. This fight against big money is a long fight. It never ends. It's always going to be a struggle. Um, But that's what we were founded on, and we should honor that. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. What happens when two college professors leave the theories of the classroom behind for the real world of bare-knuckle politics? Well, they learn a lesson the hard way. Just ask Zephyr Teachout and Larry Lessig. Each is an outstanding scholar. She teaches constitutional and property law at Fordham Law School here in New York and recently published this highly acclaimed book, Corruption in America, from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Larry Lessig teaches law at Harvard and directs that university's Edmund J. Saffer Center for Ethics. Both champion free and fair competition in our economy and our elections. Zephyr Teachout ran for governor of New York in the Democratic primary against incumbent and friend of Wall Street, Andrew Cuomo. My name is Zephyr Teachout. I'm running in the Democratic primary for the governor of the state of New York. A political unknown with no money, she surprised just about everyone, including Cuomo, by getting more than a third of the votes. A good showing, given that he spent $60.62 for each of his votes, while she could only spend $1.57. But... Nonetheless, still a defeat. Larry Lessig decided to fight fire with fire. He raised several million dollars for a super PAC called May Day and backed congressional candidates who favor reducing the influence of money in politics over those who just can't get enough of that sweet campaign cash. If he could prove that people care enough about corruption to have it make the difference when they vote, it might become politically toxic for politicians to oppose reform. But... Lessig lost two. His six picks in truly competitive races went down to defeat. So Larry Lessig and Zephyr Teachout are back in class for now. But ring the bell. Word has it they have only begun to fight. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. So you tried nobly to challenge the system from inside, and it didn't work out for either of you. Was it naive? No, I actually think we got a lot done. I mean, I'd love to be governor right now, but we showed that people out there, there's a sleeping giant out there of people who actually want a true, responsive democracy. But your money didn't wake that giant up. Well, you know, I mean, the the critics have been gloating, of course. They call me an egghead. They say it's a complete failure. Look, they're right about me being an egghead. There's no doubt about that. Um, But it wasn't a failure in the sense that the data we have shows that people care about this issue. Zephyr's campaign, I think, showed that. But in the races that we were in, we moved people to care about this issue and to vote on the basis of this issue. Now, of course, not enough to overcome the tsunami um, of Republican victories. Obviously, we were not able to overcome that. But this is an issue that really rallies people because they are so tired of the corruption of the system. 
So what did you learn new about money that you hadn't known in your long and thorough examination of corruption in America? I knew that candidates have to spend half their time or more fundraising. Um, and I knew how corrupting that was. What I didn't realize is how, in some ways, humiliating it is. Um, yeah. That you feel like a vacuum cleaner salesman or something. You're sitting in a room uh, with your fundraiser, making dial after dial. You're supposed to dial 30 times uh, an hour. Um, you're supposed to hit a quarter of your calls. And if, if people are sort of dispirited with the leadership we have now, I think it's in part because we're selecting leaders based on who is good at sitting in that room being a vacuum cleaner salesman, um, as opposed to traditional understandings of leadership, which is who has uh, real ideas about how to change things, who has special capacities for inspiration or management. What did you learn about money you didn't know? Well, I think that one thing we saw is how fearful the powerful are yeah. um, to stand up against the system. I remember reading the story. This is a Silicon Valley high-tech tycoon. When he got word that you were taking on Fred Upton, who oversees the committee that has jurisdiction over his company, he got nervous? Well, there's a couple stories here. One is the people who actually contributed uh, got nervous. They were anxious to quickly distance themselves from our attack on Fred Upton. But just before um, all of that happened, we had a very large donor who was willing to give us a very large amount of money and then heard that we were going to take on Fred Upton and said, we can't be on the wrong side of Fred Upton. And so we have this system where people are afraid, even the richest are afraid to step up against this power because they know the way in which the power and I think I actually think we have a, a lot of fear in our politics now in ways that people sense. It's a sense that politicians know that they aren't really in control, that their donors are. And it's, that's a scary feeling, yeah. that, that, lack of, that lack of power. And I, I think, you know, you see somebody like Elizabeth Warren or others who speak fearlessly, and there's genuine excitement around that. Too often, um, I think Democrats just focus on, like, the message box. What is the correct message to say? As opposed to really engaging in leadership itself and the fearlessness that's required there. Do you think that elections run by and for donors give voters a false sense of power, a false sense of control over our democratic process? I, I think that um, in the last decade or so, I mean, really since the early 90s, there's been a real shift to candidates focusing and, and serving donors. And if you have to spend half your day talking to donors or 70 percent of your day talking to donors and then turn around and give a speech engaging people on the issues that matter to them, their you know, dental care, credit cards, you know, the um, a real difficulty finding a job, it it's it feels false because it's hard to have those two conversations at the same time. And gradually, I think people have gotten more and more disillusioned because they feel like they aren't being served. They're being sort of spoken to superficially, but fundamentally not listened to. And I, I don't not blame Not democratic, them. then. It's not democratic. And, and no. if, if elections are not democratic, can we get anything else right? Or is it just all cosmetic? Well, we've got to make it democratic well, yes. first. I mean, that, but it's not. A, you both yeah, have no, said no, it's, no. it's not. It's, it's a, it's a donor-driven election. It's, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, we have the data to show this now. There was a Princeton study by Martin Gillens and Ben mm -hmm. Page, the largest empirical study of actual policy decisions by our government in the history of our government. 
And what they did is they related our actual decisions to what the economic elite care about, what the organized interest groups care about, and what the average voter care about. And when they look at the economic elites, you know, as the percentage of economic elite who support an idea goes up, the probability of it passing goes up. Yeah. As the organized interest care about something more and more, the probability of it passing goes up. But as the average voter cares about something, it has no effect at all, statistically no effect at all, on the probability of it passing. If we can go from 0% of the average voters caring about something to 100%, and it doesn't change the probability of it actually being enacted. And when you look at those numbers, that graph, this flat line, that flat line is a metaphor for our democracy. Our democracy is flatlined because when you can show clearly there's no relationship between what the average voter cares about only if it happens to coincide with what the economic elite care about, you've shown that we don't have a democracy anymore. And, and we don't, but we have still this, these forms that allow for access to power. I mean, I, I look and I'm really inspired by what's happening in Hong Kong. And those young students would do so much to have the access to the levers of power that we have now. So I think of it more like where we were in 1901 or 1902, where we had formal access to power, but... You know, if you and I were talking then, we'd be just as dispirited. You know, the big trusts really ran politics. I bet if there was a Princeton study of 1901, you'd find a flatline relationship between what people wanted and what what was happening. And yet uh, what you saw is this, you know, decades long um, populist effort finally finding fruit in uh, the Tillman Act, the 1907 law, which banned direct corporate um, uh, contributions to campaigns. Um, And so I find hope, actually, from history, because we've had this disconnect between democracy and our formal rules before. Why is it we are failing, you as scholars and activists, we as journalists, in helping people understand that much of what happens to them is the consequence of how our elections are funded because many of the people that you care about voted against you. I don't think the people are confused about whether democracy is working for them. I think they understand the problem. What we've got to do is to give them a sense that there's a solution. We've got to prove that there's a way to fix this problem. And that's what, you know, lots of different efforts are trying to do, trying to give people a practical sense that there's something they can do. You know, when we marched in, in across New Hampshire... We would meet people on the street. There was such deep passion for finding a way to finally get back control of our government. There was no argument that we had to have with them to prove, look, here's a Princeton study that shows that they got the Princeton study before the Princeton study was written. They were the Princeton study. (laughs) so, So it's just giving them hope, giving them a sense that there is something to do. And when we give people a map, a way to understand how it's possible, you know, we could fix 80% of this problem tomorrow with one statute that would establish a different way to fund campaigns. We don't have to change the Constitution to do that. You could do it without a Constitution? We could pass small-dollar public funding of elections, even with this Supreme Court, tomorrow. What does that mean? Well, that means, for example, John Sarbanes has something called the Government by the People Act. 
in that act says small contributions, like in New York City, small contributions get matched by the government. In Sarbanes' case, up to nine to one. Or Republicans have begun to push the idea of vouchers. Give every voter a voucher, which they can use to fund campaigns. Now, the point is, both of those are perfectly constitutional. They could be passed tomorrow, and they would radically change the focus candidates now give to the tiny fraction of the 1% who fund their campaigns, because they'd be much more interested in talking to the many thousand who they need to fund their campaigns. And, I mean, Larry and I really uh, share this belief that we need to communicate the solution. Um, because, I mean, I'll tell you, in New York City, we have a system like this, and it has transformed. Look, we don't have a perfect government, but well, it has it overwhelmed you. Let's be honest. I mean, we do. I've been a supporter of public financing yes. in this city for a long time, but it doesn't work when big money comes rolling in, as Larry said, like a tsunami. But what it has done is we have, uh, you know, as a feminist, public financing is a real feminist issue. Far more women are running for office under public financing systems, because don't, you don't need access to the old boys club, the old power club. Yeah. Far more um, people of color are running for office. In fact, the city council is now a majority people of color in New York City, because you don't need access to the, the same old boys club. I'm not saying it's fixed every problem, but it changes. If I want to recruit people to run, which I do, if you walk up to them and say, I want you to go out there and do this incredibly difficult, um, harrowing, exciting thing, and if you show that you have grassroots support, you'll have enough money to get heard. That's entirely different than I want you to go out there and do this exciting, harrowing thing. And half of your day, you have to spend begging at the feet of oligarchs and asking them for their permission to, uh, to run for office. And realistically, though, if you have a statute, a law, a piece of legislation that could solve some of the problem, not all of it, you have no hope of getting it through in a Congress that's run by Senator Mitch McConnell, who more than any other man in Congress today has enshrined the notion of, of, of monopoly as the game of politics. No, that's right. But we can imagine in 2016 changing control of Congress and critically recruiting a number of principled Republicans to the idea that this corrupt system is corrupt then I think it's completely possible. And more and more, grassroots Republicans are recognizing that they're not going to get what they want either under this system where they have to sell out to the big interests. Look at David Bratt's victory over Eric Cantor. In, know, the, the, Republican in the Republican primary. primary. He's now in Congress He's by beating Congress. the major leader of the House. That's right. And what his argument was is that Eric Cantor had become a crony capitalist because he spent all of his time sucking up to the Wall Street bankers rather than advancing conservative causes. Now, the conservatives are increasingly getting this, just as the liberals have understood this. And if we can begin to Get people to recognize that, look, we can differ on fundamental issues, but this really fundamental issue, we don't differ about. We have to find a way to make a democracy responsive to the but, voters. But I, I want to also talk about the Democratic Party here, though, because there's a real split within the Democratic Party between this Wall Street wing and the progressive populist wing. And I'm a Democrat. Um, and uh, you may not know this, but in 1924, I believe, the, uh, a part of the Democratic Party platform was public financing of elections. I did. I was just yeah. in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I actually think, you know, when we look at Democratic losses, it's in part because enough to, some Democrats aren't telling the truth about what's happening in the economy. And people are going to respond. If they hear a candidate who's lying to them about everything being okay, instead of some real truth-telling and some real truth-telling about what's wrong with politics and what's wrong with power. And if Democrats can truly embrace public financing as a root issue, not as a sort of 
fussy side reform, but as the root issue which enables Democrats to actually care about, you know, what's happening in working class people's lives, I think you're going to see a lot more excitement. It's the sense that Democrats aren't really telling you the truth um, and or they're they're really working for Wall Street and they say they're not that I think turns people off. And I, I think there's an extraordinary opportunity. Look, I know the odds are low. Um, I uh, Vaclav Havel um, has this wonderful, I'm, I'm not going to get Champion it exactly Champion of freedom right. in the Czech Republic. He says this thing about hope, which I find very powerful, that hope is not the same thing as optimism. Uh, optimism is the belief something is likely to happen. Hope is the belief that it is possible and it is worth doing. I see the power structures in this country, and if I'm going to be telling the truth to people, I'll tell them, honestly, we're in tough shape. Now, the house is on fire in terms of our democracy. Uh, we, we are flatlining in terms of responsiveness. But we still have opportunities if we take the moment, take this uh, moment of extraordinary frustration and engage people directly on the root issue honestly and provide a path through. And I think we have to go that way instead of these half measures that aren't really engaging the root issue. So Shane Goldmacher at the National Journal wrote... Money didn't buy the midterm elections. Quote, few observers would place the blame on a lack of money. Instead, most would point to a tough political environment, a hostile Senate map, and more than anything else, an unpopular president as the factors that dragged down Democrats nationwide. To what extent do you think money mattered last week? It mattered enormously. It mattered in the selection of candidates now, long before we even heard their names, the candidates were selected if they were basically comfortable working for big money um, donors. And that in itself gets you out of the realm of inspiration and leadership. Um, and then, of course, it mattered in the drowning of ads and the sense that people outside of any accountable power, super PACs outside of any accountable power, are really sort of running the system. So I think it made a huge difference. So you've got to think about the psychology that Zephyr describes of spending 50 to 70 percent of your time raising money. Those people were constantly aware about how what they say would affect the money in their race. And they said things that they knew would not risk too much relative to the money. So even if the money doesn't win, you know, when they said in 2012, Karl Rove lost, that was completely naive. Karl Rove won even if he didn't win any race because what he did was to define the lines that you couldn't cross. And what that has produced is exactly the kind of Democratic Party that Zephyr is attacking, one that is more interested in making sure they can continue to get the Wall Street money by not being too anti-Wall Street instead of worrying about how we can get an economy again that is actually responding to what voters care about. Let me give you an example for my campaign. Um, uh, so I, I did this fundraising, and I repeatedly heard um, from my bigger end donors that they were not particularly excited about teachers' unions. I'm a big supporter of teachers' unions. So I was very aware, and it was a choice I made, but I was very aware that every time that I went on television or Twitter or anywhere else talking about teachers' unions, that would have an effect on my funding base. Uh, the easier thing to do is to just ignore the issue, to say, well, I secretly agree with it, but I'm not going to say anything because that's going to affect my funding base. And then you end up with these milk toast candidates 
who aren't saying anything because they know where the public is and they know where their donors are and there's very little that where there's an overlap. It seems to me as a journalist who's covered this for a long time that we are at some kind of tipping point where the present system becomes institutionalized because the people who run the system get the big donations and they have no incentive to make the changes that you would like to see. Mm-hmm. That's right. We're at that moment. That's why there's so much urgency right now. But the other part about being at this moment is that it's produced a government that cannot function, right? Mm -hmm. Francis Fukuyama talks about the vitocracy we now have. The what? Vitocracy. He's a scholar at Stanford, right? And the point is, because in large part of this enormous influence of money, it's trivially simple for a small fraction of that money to block any change, whether it's change on the right or change on the left. So we've built this system that is perfectly empowered but it now can't govern. It won't govern when it's a Republican president. It won't govern when it's a a Democratic president. And that's building the incredible sense that we need to do something to change. And it's vetoing on so many different levels. I mean, what I see is the the way in which this concentration of political power is happening at the same time as there's a concentration of economic power. So this extraordinary entrepreneurial tradition we have in this country is actually getting quashed. We have a pretty steep decline of the number of entrepreneurs in the last 25 years. But we have that tradition still. And if we can tap into that and instead of people running away from politics, engaging directly in electoral politics, engaging directly in the kind of activism we need, we're not so far away from the best parts of our tradition that we just should give the game up. We'll continue this conversation online. Larry Lessig, Zephyr Teachout, thank you for being with me. Thank you. At our website, BillMoyers.com, we continue our conversation with Lawrence Lessig and Zephyr Teachout. And we remember Army veteran Thomas Young, who died this week at the age of 34. Thomas was severely wounded in Iraq 10 years ago and came back paralyzed. In 2008, we aired excerpts from Body of War, a documentary about Thomas Young, and we spoke with its producers, Phil Donahue and Ellen Spiro. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.